after Paul had departed from them, he got word somehow, we don't know how, that the churches in Galatia were not doing that well, that they were being pulled astray by people that Paul calls agitators or troublers. And these agitators and these troublers were pulling people away by preaching to them a gospel that concerned circumcision. This gospel was not a full-fledged, you are going to earn it all by works. So as we've discussed in the letter, verses in 2.15 and 16 that speaks so heavily of people being justified only by Christ and not by the law, that you need to believe and trust in Jesus Christ in order to be counted as not guilty before the throne of God. That was accepted by everybody. That was accepted by the Galatians and by the agitators, by Peter himself and Paul. This was part and parcel of the core bit of Christian theology. It was the center of all things. And so everyone would have agreed on that. The problem was the agitators appeared to have come and said, yes, all of that is true. But you need to understand that since Abraham was, ever since he was given Isaac, the people of God have always been marked out by circumcision. They've always been marked out by that. The males on the eighth day were taken and they were circumcised. And, and so therefore, now that you are all part of our family, you have come in to know the faith that has been passed down to us through Abraham, you likewise need to take on circumcision to truly be fully part of the people of God. That is primarily the argument that is going on. So Paul is not proving that people are justified by faith alone. The point of the letter to the Galatians is to point out that circumcision, adding work, any sort of work, on top of that justificating faith is incompatible with the statement that you are justified by faith alone. Everyone agrees you're justified by faith alone. The question is, what do we do then with circumcision? What do we do with these extra works that some people say that we need to do? Paul, in the first part of Galatians, in Galatians 1 and Galatians 2, if you want to look at this as though it's a battle, he was securing his supply lines. He was doing all of the preparatory work and the logistical work to mount his attack. He was defending his own apostleship. He was defending the gospel that he preached. But now he is going to go on the attack. Now he's going to take to the Galatians with forward arguments about what they believe and why they believe it to show that it is incompatible to think that you need to be circumcised alongside thinking that you are justified by faith in Christ. Throughout the rest of the book of Galatians, Paul will be painting two starkly different pictures. One, a picture of a former age, a picture that is, is sealed by circumcision and works of the flesh, a picture of an age that has been gone and that held people in slavery versus a picture of freedom in the spirit of inheritance of all of the coming blessings of Jesus Christ that have been poured out on people. Very stark pictures. One is very black and white and bleak and hopeless. The other is filled and vibrant and filled with hope and inheritance and blessing. That is what Paul is aiming to do. He begins this in chapter 3 by arguing from, not scripture, but oddly enough, from the experience of the Galatians themselves. That experience is of the Spirit. So if you would follow in reading with me, we'll actually read the first five verses of Galatians chapter 3. Those verses read, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. But let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's words here are meant to spur the Galatians on to seeing the foolishness of what they've done. He's called them foolish twice. They are to see with these rhetorical questions, especially in verse 2 and in verse 3, that their actions are foolish. As I was going through this, I realized that there is just a lot of background that we need for this. And so this particular time that we've gathered together, we're going to do a lot of background information. Basically, the whole thing is going to prepare us for the sermon next week. So instead of going for an hour and a half, I thought I would cut you some slack and we would just short turn it a bit. So we're going to do some background on what exactly the Spirit is, um, why he has been given, and why Paul mentions him here. So remember, circumcision is the sign of the people of God. Paul, instead of talking about the sign of the people of God, instead of talking about baptism here, instead of saying you've been baptized and that therefore has sealed you is the sign that you belong to God's people. Instead of talking about that, he talks about the spirit. The question is, why does he do that? Why does Paul begin to talk about the spirit here and their experience of the spirit when circumcision is really the issue? Why does Paul begin to talk about the Spirit as the mark of the people of God? Does he pull this out of thin air? Perhaps like the gospel, as he has claimed, it is revealed to him personally. Then second to that, why is this general knowledge? He, he talks to the Galatians like these answers are clear and ought to lead them to the right conclusions without him saying almost anything else. The question is, why would it do that? How is knowledge that the Spirit marks them out as the people of God general knowledge? Is it general knowledge? Mixed with this is what exactly is the experience of the Spirit for these people? And more important than that, what is the experience of the Spirit for us? So remember what's going on here. These Galatians are concerned that they are part of the people of God. They've had people show up and say, in order to be part of the people of God, to know that you are part of the people of God, you need to be circumcised. And Paul says, no, you need to know that you have the Spirit. And you indeed know you have the Spirit. None of this works. None of Paul's rhetoric in here works if they are unaware if they've had the Spirit. So something very clear has happened to them. The question is, what is that? Because this is the same question that you and I face repeatedly throughout our lives. Am I actually saved? Am I part of the people of God? Am I part of God's redeemed? How do we know that? One of Paul's answers comes back that you have experienced the Spirit. That's a good question then. What does that experience look like? How can we know that we ourselves have experienced the Spirit? Paul says himself in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? He implores people, test yourselves. This is one of those tests. Do you have the Spirit? What does the experience for the Galatians look like? But more important than that, what does that experience look like for us? For us. We will tackle the first thing first. We need to talk about the reason for the Spirit. The first point is then the reason for the Spirit. For the Spirit. Why does Paul argue not for circumcision, not for baptism here, but why does he go directly to the Spirit? Does he receive this as a revelation from God on high? Does he conjure it out of thin air? 
Well, it is received as revelation from God on high, but it's done through the Old Testament. We can see this theme coming out in the Old Testament quite clearly. One of the first places where the Spirit amongst God's people is known and seen, and a very important occurrence, is in Numbers 11. At this point in time, Moses is clearly gifted with the Spirit. God's Spirit is upon him, and he is a leader amongst his people. It has marked him out as a leader amongst the people. It has been given to him in terms of judgment over the people and in terms of his leadership of the people. But at this point in time in Numbers, it's becoming so burdensome on him that he can barely handle the burden that has been placed on him. And so the Lord comes to him and says, Listen, Moses, I I realize that this burden is great on you. So what I'm going to do is I want you to call 70 members of Israel, 70 elders, and have them come to you. Okay? When they come to you, I will take part of the spirit that has been given to you and I will give it to them that they will help carry some of the burden that has been placed upon you. And in Numbers 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verses 24 through 30, we read this. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent, that is the tent of meeting. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit had rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, that is, they were among the 70 elders, they were called by Moses, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. And so, The 70 elders were supposed to come to him. For whatever reason, two of them had stayed back in the camp. And they prophesied. It kind of seems like they prophesied once to to show the, the power of the Spirit coming upon them. The problem was that two of them had stayed in the camp and that everyone had seen what had happened. And this young man, who's not even named, runs and tells Moses what's going on. And Joshua speaks up and he says, Moses, you've got to put an end to this. Moses' words after that are these. Are you jealous for my sake? Moses was set aside. He was holy. He was unique amongst the people of God. And Joshua is concerned that now all of these people are having the spirit, all these people prophesying, you will not be seen as the leader anymore. You won't be seen as as being holy and precious in God's sight the way you deserve to be for all the leadership that you've had over us. And Moses says, are you honestly jealous for me? Listen to these next words. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses knows immediately that the Spirit has come down as it does throughout most of the Old Testament on certain people, on certain times, but certainly not on all of the people. Now, he does here prophesy that there might be a time, he's almost pleading with the Lord, may there be a time when the Spirit will fall on all of God's people, but that is not this time. The people here are marked out by circumcision. The people here are marked out by a sign in the flesh. The Spirit is given to people consistently throughout the Old Testament to finish a task, to do something. They're equipped by the Spirit. This is what we get when they're making the tabernacle. All the elegant portions of the tabernacle, people are gifted by the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon the craftsmen that they can do the work better. The Spirit comes upon Samuel so that he might speak the words of God. The Spirit comes upon David and other kings that they might lead the people well. 
but it certainly does not come upon all of the people. Something interesting then happens later on in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. If you will flip there, we are going to look at Ezekiel 36 for several moments to try and set the context for why Paul runs to the Spirit when talking about circumcision. The problem in Ezekiel is this. We've talked about this problem in the Old Testament before. God has promised, a unilateral promise, that in his power he would give people the land. But he has also told them, in the book of Deuteronomy, where we see that promise foretold, he also tells them, if you don't keep my law and my commandments, you will not stay in my land. I will exile you. I will push you out of the land. And in doing so, you will be treated like all of the other nations. If you go and commit idolatry like all of the nations. If you go and do abominable things like the rest of the nations, I will treat you like the rest of the nations, and I will drive you out. This creates a problem for us in the New Testament when we look back and we say, well, how can God promise something that is contingent upon his people? God promises to fix that in Deuteronomy 30, which we will look at here in a moment. But it creates a unique problem for God amongst the nations. Listen to how God speaks here. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways I, and their deeds, I judged them. So he's saying, Ezekiel, listen, I treated them exactly how they deserve to be treated. I am guiltless in this. I have told them if they do not act like my people, if they don't follow my laws, I will exile them. Indeed, I have done this. But he turns around and says this, But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. Now the question is, how did they profane his holy name? What is it about going out to the nations that has defamed his holy name? It is not just that they were sinful because they were defiling his holy name in the land at the time. There's something more than that going on. The problem is that they are known to be God's people. They are Yahweh's people. And back in those times, it wasn't just that we saw one God who was being faithful to his people and when they were unfaithful, he was kicked out. If you were a foreign nation, that's not how it worked. Foreign nations knew that gods belonged to their people and people belonged to their gods so that when you went to battle with a foreign nation, you also went to battle with their gods, your God versus their God. And to the foreign nations that were around, when Babylon comes in and destroys Israel, they look at the people of Israel being led astray and they think their God was unable to protect them. Their God was one and unable to give them and keep the land from the Babylonians. Their God is weak and worthless compared to the Babylonian gods. And he says, by sending them out, their very presence out in the foreign lands, their name, my name, that is carried by them is being defiled. Because I am now being undervalued and unhonored and deglorified by the fact that my people who carry my name were supposedly beaten by the Babylonians. So this is the problem. When they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holiness. Simply by their presence there, they profaned my name. In that, this is how the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. These are the people of Yahweh. Yet they had to go out of his land. He wasn't able to keep them. So what did God do? 
But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, so that's the problem. Verse 22, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. He says, this won't stand. I won't let people think little of me. So I will vindicate my holiness before them. I will take actions to make sure that the defilement that has come upon my name never stands, and I will vindicate my name from before them. How is he going to do it? In verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle, you clean, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. He says the answer to this is God's cleansing of you. But more than that, the answer to this is God's provision of the spirit. You were known by God in flesh only so that when you were driven out, it looked like God was unfaithful to you. It looked like God had failed in his promises. He says, I will rectify that by noting that my people are the ones who have my spirit. There will come a day when I will call you back and in calling you back, I will give you my spirit. And mixed in with that is this important information about giving a new heart. God says, I will take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is, by the way, probably a reference simply to another aspect of giving the Spirit. What is giving you a new heart? It is giving you the Spirit of God. Why is that important? Because all the way back in Deuteronomy, and we've talked about this many times, I hope you continue to see this connection all the way back in Deuteronomy, we read this. After Moses has looked at the people and said, although I'm putting before you blessings and curses, the blessings are awesome, the curses are horrific, I know that you will not do what the Lord God has commanded you, you cannot stand in the land, you will be driven out. He, he pronounces to them that the curses will come upon them. But God is faithful to his promises. In Deuteronomy 30, he says, God will make it right. And in 30 verse 5, we read this. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, just like Ezekiel said, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul that you may live. This is the work of the Spirit. Earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses called for the people to circumcise their hearts. They were circumcised in their flesh, but now they needed to circumcise their hearts to know that they would love the Lord their God. That very first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. They couldn't do it. And so Moses says, God will come and he will do it for you. He will circumcise your heart. Ezekiel expands that and says, that circumcision of the heart is the provision of the Spirit. Circumcision that used to set aside the people of God is now being called the provision of the Spirit. That is the way in which the people of God are to be known. When God acts in the last days, 
when the new age comes, the people will no longer be known by circumcision, but they will be known by the provision of the Spirit of God to them. If this wasn't clear enough, Joel puts an end to all, to all sort of haziness in this. The famous passage in Joel 2, verses 28 through 29, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, not like he did for Moses and not like he did for the elders. It wasn't a spirit that's being poured out on them for specific tasks. It wasn't poured out on especially important leaders. But he says, I will pour it out on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. In verse 29, the most important one, even on the male and female servants in those days will I pour out my spirit. My spirit is going to come upon all of my people. It won't come on certain select individuals, but my people will be known by having my spirit. This is what will mark them out from the rest of the nations. So when Paul comes to them and says, you don't need circumcision. You got the spirit. You've received the spirit. God has given you the spirit. This is the mark of the new age. You have no need for circumcision then. How did you get the spirit? Was it through circumcision? He says, no, it wasn't through doing the works of the law. You received the Spirit by believing the very message that you were told. It is faith alone that gets you the mark that means that you are God's people. There is no more mark than that. Nothing more than having the Spirit sets you apart as God's people. Paul didn't just bring this up out of nowhere. This is directly out of an implication from the Old Testament. And more than that, Paul was not alone in acknowledging this. The Galatians knew this probably because this was writ all over the practice of the New Testament church. Two very important times we see the reception of the Holy Spirit mark people out as members of the people of God. And importantly, it marks out Gentiles as members of the people of God. Both times at the hand of Peter. In Acts 11, after he goes and speaks to Cornelius, they receive the message that is being given to them. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And Peter, responding to the rest of the church about what has happened, is reporting this incident. And he says in verses 15 through 17 in Acts 11, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. This is Gentiles he's talking about. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, this is the conclusion that Peter draws. So he has gone to Gentiles. He's preached the message of the gospel to Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls on them. He says exactly like it fell on us. This is his conclusion. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? They're asking, why did you baptize these people? Why did you admit them as members on equal standing? And he said, because clearly God did. The provision of the Spirit meant that these people were in equal standing with us. He gave them the Spirit just as he had given it to us. In Acts 15, same incident, this time in a more general way. Peter says this in verses 8 and 9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, that is, Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Same idea. The people who receive the Spirit are marked out as the New Testament people of God. The old age, the age of circumcision, the age of flesh was behind us. 
with the coming of Christ, there is a new age where the people of God are no longer marked out by circumcision. They are marked out by God's provision of the Spirit to them. That is the sign that you belong to the people of God, and that alone. It was writ all over the Old Testament, following the stream of Old Testament provision, and given the way the New Testament handles these things, it's clear that not only did the Galatians assume that that was true, but Paul likewise assumed that that was true. The provision of the Spirit marks you out as the people of God. But that brings us to point number two. What is the experience of the Spirit? What is the experience of the Spirit? How did these people know so finally and fully that they had actually received the Spirit? And what, again, importantly, does that mean for us? How do we know that we have the Spirit? We don't actually have much information in the book of Galatians about what their experience looked like. Verse 5 is probably the closest we can get. It says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you? Now, many people take that to say, well, listen, the Spirit of God as it fell in the book of Acts typically fell with the speaking of tongues and it fell powerfully and there was working of miracles. And, And clearly even here in Galatia, it seems like the two came together. The provision of the Spirit and the working of miracles came together so that they knew they had the Spirit of God because they were able to do amazing things. I've talked to many people, many of them, Pentecostal people who talk about their assurance that they know God and that they have experienced the Spirit of God because they've talked in tongues. I've never talked in tongues. Sometimes I stumble over my words and I could maybe blow that off by saying I was talking in tongues, but that's not the case. I'm just, sometimes my tongue is bigger than my mouth and so that's just a problem that I have. But that's not talking in tongues. Most of you, I'm guessing, because you're here, are not the type of people who regularly talk in tongues. How do you know whether you have the Spirit? Have you been missing out on the Spirit of God? They point back. Not all Pentecostal believers do that, by the way. They don't always say that, I know that I have the Spirit of God because I speak in tongues, but many of them that I have met do. And they point back at the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, repeatedly, when people receive the Spirit of God, they do so with the flowing of tongues. There's much to say about this. We don't have time to go over all of it. We don't have time to go over all of the work of the Spirit and what the Spirit does and the way you can know more than anything else that you have the Spirit of God. But I will say that you can sum that up with basically one word that is way more important than the word tongue, and that is love. If tongues is the manifestation of the Spirit where they would know that they have the Spirit of God, you would expect that Paul would exhort people to speak in tongues, that he would implore them to speak in tongues, to demonstrate and to show that they have the Spirit of God, but he never does that. As a matter of fact, the only book that really mentions tongues all that much outside of the book of Acts is 1 Corinthians, and there Paul is patting out the fire of speaking in tongues as quickly as he can. He says, if you do this in worship, it's got to be regulated and it's got to be done in this form and fashion. And he turns around in the middle of talking about these extravagant spiritual gifts that people have and he says this, what you actually need is love. That passage from 1 Corinthians 13 that we love to have at marriage ceremonies, right? It's good. We, We preach it at weddings. We sing it at weddings because it's an important text. You need to have love in marriage. But Paul is talking about spiritual gifts in the middle of that. How do you know you have the Spirit? What is the, the best application of the Spirit? He says, it's love. If I have all powers, 
If I am able to speak all prophecies, I'm worthless. I'm a clanging gong and a bashing cymbal without love. Even in this letter, he doesn't say, you know you have the Spirit because you've had all this amazing stuff happen. You keep doing the amazing stuff, guys. What does he say? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He preaches very plain things. This is the work of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit ought to produce in you. And it's not just Paul. Listen to Jesus talking about the provision of the Spirit to his people in John 14, verses 15 through 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments keeps them. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him wrapped up in all of that, is you will love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, but I will provide you as helper in that. I will provide you the spirit in that. And he will aid you in loving me. He will aid you in keeping my commandments. He will aid you in doing all the things that I have called for you to do. The Spirit is there to give us a heart that beats for God. It is there to give us love for the Lord. It is there to give us a love that we did not have before. That is the very nature of it. And then to keep his commandments. This sounds a lot like Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, I will give you a, I will circumcise your heart so that you will love me the way that you ought to love me and that you will do the things that I've called on you to do. This is what the provision of the Spirit is for. This is how you experience the Spirit. You love the Lord. You love him. It's not a perfect love. It's flawed and it's it's bad at times, but you love him all the same. And through that love of the Lord, you also love the Lord's people. It is the first and the second commandments. Well, first and second of the greatest commandments. You will love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. One book over in Ephesians, we have a very good picture of this. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, Therefore, as I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father and God of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You were called to love one another through the unity that is in the Spirit. The Spirit has left you bereft of a number of things that you need. But you know who he's given it to? Your neighbor's. Those people who belong with you in church, that you might be built together, the Spirit is given to you, that you might love one another, that you might know your need of one another, that you might love to be around one another. This is one of the reasons why people who go from church to church, I remember my wife telling me that she met people not too long ago who were almost bragging about the fact that they attend many churches as though one church couldn't satiate them. Get over yourself. The reason why you are to belong to the members of one church is so that you can love them. It's not a drive-through. 
You are to invest your time with them. They're flawed and they will be ugly at times. And so will you. But that draws you closer through a work of the Spirit to grow your love for one another. That is what the Spirit is there for. But it's not just that. The Spirit has also provided that we would love our neighbor and also love God. One chapter over in the book of Ephesians, Paul says this, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, what does that look like? Let's be filled with the Spirit of God. What does that look like, Paul? Does that look like miracles? Does it look like speaking in tongues? Does it look like healing ministries? Does it look like faith provision? Does it look like being slain? What does it look like? It looks like everyday life, loving the Lord. What does he say? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. It looks like a people who sing out of a love for the Lord from their heart to him, who sing and address one another in the same sort of songs, It looks like a people who love the Lord so that they burst into song. We don't need to call you forward into song. It comes out of you. That is what a love for the Lord looks like. The experience of the Spirit is love. It manifests itself in faith. You can't love the Lord unless you trust him, unless you trust that what he has said is true, unless you trust that what he has done is real and abiding for you, unless you trust in his word. It is fundamental that if you love God, you will trust him and trust in the gospel that he has given to you. That is part and parcel of what the Spirit of God does to you. You want to know if you have the Spirit of God. Do you love him? Do you love the people of God? Not perfectly, but do you sing to him and sing truthfully to him from the bottom of your heart about his glory? Are you concerned that his glory is above all other things? Are you concerned that Jesus Christ be named and praised among the peoples of the world? That is a love for God that manifests itself in the provision of the Spirit. It is only by the Spirit that you can do these things. Lastly, we need to speak on the continued work of the Spirit. What is the continued work of the Spirit? of the Spirit. Paul mentions this in the third verse here. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That is, completed. Are you being rounded off into the person you're supposed to be? Is that happening by the flesh? So God sort of kick-started you. He gave you a jump start, right? And you get going, and then you say, okay, now I can go back and I can do it all on my own. It depends on what you mean by flesh here. So what does Paul mean when he talks about flesh? The flesh is our bodies, right? It is our physical beings. And Paul talks like this at times, and he talks about my brothers after the flesh. At times he talks about Jews that way. They are his brothers, but only patterned after the flesh. That is, his physical brethren, the Jews. But he talks in other ways about the flesh being cursed and sinful. The flesh is, is simply our fallen nature apart from the aid of the Spirit. So, Anytime Paul talks about flesh, and he will do so a lot through the book of Galatians, the flesh is sort of, understanding of the flesh is sort of undergirding a lot of the understanding that Paul is going to be providing through the book of Galatians. He's already connected the flesh with his life uh, lived in weakness earlier in the book of Galatians. He will do it again later in the book of Galatians. And here is connected directly to the work of your hands. It is connected to a time before the provision of the Spirit, Right? 
So the works of the law and the works of the flesh go together because the works of the law were done by people of the flesh of Israel working without the provision of the Spirit. But now you have the Spirit. Now you have the Spirit. You don't need to go back to doing it on your own. You rely upon the Spirit to work and to aid out what we would call your sanctification. What is it that's making you more holy in the Lord? How is it that you provoke yourselves towards holiness in the Lord? It's not by doing it on your own. It's by trusting in the Spirit to do it. You don't fall back on an old age, but you rely upon the Spirit to help you. In je- to give you a couple of examples, how does this work out? In jealousy, Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Jealousy is an ugly thing. We want things that other people have. We, we want to keep up with them. We want their appearance. We want the happiness that they have. We want their wives or we want their toys or we want whatever it might be. How can you get over that? How are you to fight against that? See, the problem there is a changing of your heart. How are you supposed to be able, with the work of your own hands, to change what it is you love? You can't, you can't do it. The heart always chooses the thing that it loves the most. It always will. Now, many of you are thinking through that, hopefully, and you say, well, that seems really wrong because I don't want to go to work this week, but I'm probably going to go to work this week. It's really cold outside. I would like to not get up and go to my car. I would like to not have to drive to work. I would like to not have to put up with those people at work. I would like to not have to put up with work at work. And so I would really like to just stay at home, but I'm going to do it anyways, right? And I'm fighting against my own desires there. How can you say that the heart always chooses to love what it does the most? Well, that's not the only option. You could stay at home, but what's going to happen if you do stay at home? You will lose your job. You will lose your income. And so in order to keep your job, which you love more than not having a job, you go to work. The heart always chooses what it loves the most, but you can't choose to love something. You love it. What God is doing is providing that for you so that when you were jealous, It is the Spirit providing a greater love for the Lord and the goodness of the Lord and the goodness of the things of the Lord that provoke you to put aside your jealousy. It's the same thing with anger. Anger is usually born out of pride, that you want to defend yourself and in doing so, maybe utter angry and wretched words in order to defend yourself against something that other people have done. What does the Spirit do? It calls upon you to love the Lord. It calls upon you to love his honor and his glory above your own. It calls upon you to trust in him, knowing that he will make it right, that just as Christ suffered unjustly, he entrusted himself to one who judges justly, and so shall you. And that through reliance upon the Spirit and a love for the Lord, you are able to bite your tongue because the Spirit has provided for you a love that is greater than your own pride. This is how sanctification happens. It is replacing substandard loves with better loves. And so that it is you who act. It is you who do those good things, but you do it because the Spirit has given you a love which is greater and truer than the loves that you've had before. You are sanctified by the Spirit. That is the continued work of the Spirit. The gospel is nothing more than good news that what you couldn't do to make everything right with God, God has done himself. And that includes... Providing the spirit that gives you faith, that gives you trust, that gives you a new heart. He has redone everything about you. He remakes your heart so that you will choose what is good and reject what is bad. He continues to do this day after day after day, renewing you in the image of God. Specifically in the image of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel is good news that Christ died for your sins and was able to provide for you the Spirit through his resurrection. Him and the Father sent forward the Spirit of God so that you would have to do nothing and that God would do everything to secure your salvation. For those of you who have never trusted in that, there's a very simple, simple thing to do. Trust. Trust in that. Trust that God has actually done these things. Trust that what is being written here is the only way that you can ever be saved from God's wrath. Trust that by placing yourself in the cross of Jesus Christ, by believing that Christ has actually died for your sins and has actually died to keep you from being separated from God forever and to keep you from being under his wrath, he has taken that wrath upon himself and therefore you can be forgiven. For those of you who do believe that, let me tell you, there is a really easy test as to whether you believe it. You'll stand up in a minute and you'll sing. You're not going to probably speak in tongues. You're probably not going to perform miracles. But you will get up and you will sing. You'll sing with all of your heart. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, without the Spirit of God being upon them. In a moment, we will stand up and we will have what I pray will be a mighty demonstration of the Spirit of God when we stand and we sing with full hearts, all I have is Christ. That is the working of the Spirit of God. Know that and experience that today. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your work in us, and we are thankful for the provision of the Spirit of God that we might know you and trust in you, that we might see and savor the goodness of who you are, for we do not see it on our own. We are blinded by the things that this world can give to us, by shiny metal objects and green paper and little cards worth of credit. We are blinded by our own success and we are blinded by so many of the fleeting things of this world. We do not see your goodness or love you for it. If not for the provision of your spirit, we would be left there. But Father, you have indeed given us the spirit through your gospel that we might know you, that we might see you, that we might love you as we ought. We pray, Father, that your spirit will be upon us as we sing. For those here, Father, who do not know you, and pray that your spirit will fall upon them that for the first time they might know the power of the spirit. Not necessarily through great works, but through hearts set on fire for your glory and your honor. May you be praised forever. In Jesus' name, amen.